Hello and welcome to the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine, our statewide campus system med ed e-forum, our special edition this month. We have Dr. Jessica Heschel-Short uh, with us today. She is a board certified family medicine physician. She's currently practicing at the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine in the Family Medicine Clinic. Her interests within family medicine include mental health, palliative care, the LBGTQ plus health um, procedures, as well as evidence-based medicine. She also teaches for the osteopathic patient care course in our UME curriculum. Dr. Heschel-Short, thank you so much for being here uh, with me today. And I'll let you take it away on talking about caring for the LBGTQ patients. Thank you so much for having me today. So as Deb said, I am a family medicine physician and um, I practice pretty much all aspects of family medicine outside of obstetrics. I don't deliver babies, but um, a big part of my practice is caring for transgender patients. And so that's why I am here bringing this presentation to you today. Um, I don't have anything to disclose. Um, I may mention briefly hormone treatment, which is an off-label use of hormones for um, gender care. We won't be getting very much into that today. That's a topic in and of itself. Um, but if I do mention that, I just wanted to mention that that would be off-label use. That's really my only disclosure that I have for you today. So our objectives of today's talk, um, I would like you to understand terminology related to sexual orientation and gender identity so that we can use those terms appropriately, um, understand some barriers to care that affect LGBTQ plus patients, learn some ways that you can make your practice more affirming to LGBTQ plus patients, and know where to find resources for further learning. And today's talk is really only an introduction and hopefully if you're interested in learning more, um, you can find that in some other places. So let's start off with terminology so that we get that good background in place before we continue on with our talk. Um, I just wanted to note that language does change over time. And so what's considered best practice today may be outdated in the future. So it's really important to stay on top of these language changes, um, which you can do via interacting with um, you know, media, other people in who are in the field, students, residents, you know, just talking to other people, you will learn more updated language as language does change. And I may, I may give some examples of that too. So I like to illustrate our terminology with this little um, animation here. Um, this is the gender unicorn. I didn't um, make this myself, but I pulled this from transstudent.org. And it, it illustrates some of the different topics we're talking about. So we'll start with sex. So sex refers to attributes that characterize biological maleness or femaleness. And so that's usually determined um, by sex chromosomes, sex hormones, internal and external genitalia. And that's assigned at birth. Like baby comes out, doctor holds it up and says, it's a boy. So that could be, ooh. Um, so some examples would be male, female, intersex. Um, we don't use the term hermaphrodite any longer. That used to be a term used um, for intersex individuals and we don't use that term any longer. And then we have gender identity. So um, that's a person's internal sense of gender and gender refers to attitudes, feelings, and behaviors that a given culture associates with biologic sex. Um, so that might include male, female, 
agender, which means not really identifying with any gender, um, non-binary, having characteristics um, or identifying with both genders or neither gender, um, somewhere on a gender spectrum, gender queer, um, and there's many, many other terms that you may hear people use for their gender identity. Um, so sex is usually assigned at birth. Gender identity um, is something that you can't assume and you would have to ask the person what their gender identity is in order to know that for sure. So then we've got sexual orientation that's indicated on our little um, illustration by the hearts here. So sexual orientation is how a person characterizes their emotional and sexual attraction to others. So some examples here may be gay, lesbian, bisexual, or asexual. We don't usually use the term homosexual anymore. Sometimes we may use that in, um, you might see that in like papers or writings and that sort of thing. Most people would not tell you that they identify as homosexual. They would usually say they identify as gay or lesbian. Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's an offensive term per se, but not one that you usually hear people say. Um, I would caution you not to use the term queer unless the person specifically tells you that they identify this way. This is a term that used to be quite offensive and has now been taken back by a lot of people who do use that as the way that they identify themselves. But you may have some patients, friends, colleagues who um, still associate that with the negative connotation of it being used as a slur in the past. And so be careful with that one. I would also avoid sexual preference when we're talking about so sexual orientation because that indicates that it's more of a choice rather than how someone is, how someone was born. So sexual orientation is preferred over sexual preference. Um, this green sort of wavy line or the characteristics of the entire little unicorn here is the gender expression. So gender expression is the external appearance of one's gender expressed through behavior, clothing, et cetera, that may or may not correspond to a person's assigned sex at birth or gender identity. And that might include feminine, masculine, or other. So transgender is an umbrella term, it's an adjective for people whose gender identity and or expression doesn't match their assigned sex at birth. So we don't use transgender as a noun or a verb. We don't say that person is um, transgendering. Um, we don't say that person is a transgender. We would say they are transgender. Um, we don't say transgendered. Um, we also these days don't typically say transsexual. That is kind of an outdated term. Um, used to be more acceptable, like going back to the 90s and such. That was a common term and not necessarily offensive. But these days, that's pretty outdated for most folks. If people do tell you that that's how they identify, that would be appropriate to use. Um, for example, I just read a book this year that was written by a um, transgender woman, and it's called Detransition Baby. And she uses this phrase a lot um, in that book. And I would say, you know, that is a term that she identifies with but not one that we would typically use. We certainly wouldn't want to use tranny or transvestite. Those would be considered to be um, offensive terms. So gender dysphoria is the medical diagnosis that we use when we refer to the distress someone experiences when their gender identity doesn't match the sex they were assigned at birth. Um, the medical term used to be called gender identity disorder. That was removed from the DSM for the fifth edition in 2013. Um, with the emphasis with gender dysphoria, placing the emphasis on the problem is the distress. The problem is not the identity. So that's why that has changed. Um, so hopefully you've got that terminology down. Um, if you have any questions about any of those terms, you can feel free to contact me and um, the Fenway LGBTQ Health Center that I will mention and link to later on has a very extensive glossary of terms, many more than what we've just covered here.
So now next let's talk about some disparities in healthcare that affect the LGBTQ plus population. So a little background first to kind of help you understand why these disparities come about and some of the wrongs that the medical um, community has done to patients who um, are LGBTQ plus in the past. So going back to the 19th century, um, prior to then, really issues of sexuality and gender were more under the umbrella of like the religious um, community. And then it became more under the um, umbrella of medicine starting around this time. And some schools of thought considered homosexuality to be a disorder or illness. And so if you go back to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which gives us our mental health diagnoses, um, from DSM-1 until DSM-3R, so from 1952 until 1987, um, homosexuality was in there as a disease. Now, it's still classified as a um, disorder in the ICD-10, but not a um, or gender dysphoria is still classified in the ICD-10 as a disorder. It's not a Z code as some of our other things like pregnancy or well adult are. Um, homosexuality is not, that should say gender identity disorder. Um, so that is still in the ICD-10 currently, probably will no longer be considered a disorder um, in the future iterations of ICD, um, as well as consideration of taking it out for the next DSM edition. Um, so conversion therapy was considered acceptable by the medical community um, for a very long time. Only in 1998 did the APA officially begin to oppose it, and it is still legal in some states. So that's another area where medicine has not been kind to the LGBTQ plus population. Um, and then furthermore, during the AIDS epidemic, many doctors refused to care for HIV positive patients or even for gay patients um, because of the um, fear and the discrimination against those patients. Um, so that's the background, but there is still a lot of discrimination in healthcare today. So among LGBTQ plus respondents to a 2017 survey, um, very high numbers, so 8%, which is much higher than the baseline population, um, were refused care by a healthcare provider because of their actual or perceived sexual orientation. 9% reported a healthcare provider had used harsh or abusive language when treating them, and 7% had experienced unwanted physical contact from a doctor or other healthcare provider, such as fondling, assault, or even rape. Um, a different survey, a 2015 survey on transgender health reported that 33% of respondents said they had had negative experiences in healthcare. 23% um, had postponed medical care due to discrimination. 33% had postponed medical care due to inability to afford it. And 25% reported having to teach their doctor about transgender care, which is kind of an astonishingly high number if you think about it. And you would never expect to walk into your um, physician's office and have to teach them about diabetes or about hypothyroidism. So to have to walk into the office and tell your doctor how to care for you, what medications you think they should prescribe you, that sort of thing, that's not what we expect in the medical field for most things. Um, so we see, you know, high levels of discrimination here, but isn't discrimination illegal? Well, yes, um, federal law does prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. That became official in 2016 with the Affordable Care Act, um, specifically in Section 1557. 
where it prohibits discrimination in healthcare based on race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability. And then Health and Human Services did go on to clarify that when they say sex, that includes sexual orientation and gender identity. There was a brief time during the Trump administration where they specifically posited that no, sexual orientation and gender identity are not protected, but that protection was again specifically reinstated early in 2021. Um, an additional federal protection against discrimination comes from the Supreme Court case Bostock versus Clayton, where the Supreme Court determined that the Civil Rights Act protects employees against discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, um, saying discrimination of this nature is by definition discrimination on the basis of sex. Now that's in relationship to employment, but if there were any challenges in terms of health care, they would most likely use Bostock versus Clayton as the precedent that does give that protection in the field of healthcare as well. Of course, just because something is federally illegal doesn't mean that people don't do it, um, but there are federal protections. Now there are state protections in some areas as well. So some states have non-discrimination laws. Um, in Michigan, we do have laws that prohibit health insurance discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. This map shows which states do have those protections in private insurance. Um, you'll see there's only one state where the law explicitly permits discrimination um, in Arkansas, and that's also only the, the only state that bans best practice medical care for transgender youth. So they've got some work to do there. Um, but Michigan, fortunately, does have non-discrimination laws um, for private as well as Medicaid. So here we've got the Medicaid map. So state Medicaid um, policy explicitly covers healthcare related to gender transition for transgender people. Um, so we've got some protections. Discrimination, unfortunately, does still happen. Sometimes it's obvious, and other times it comes in the form of um, health disparities and may not be as obvious on the surface. So there are several disparities, and some of these have to do with people not knowing certain things about LGBTQ plus healthcare. So for example, um, lesbian women are less likely to have cancer screenings. And we think that that's probably because some patients may not know that they need pap smears, but also some doctors probably bring it up less with their lesbian patients or may, may themselves not realize that lesbian women also need pap smears at the same rate as, um, as straight women. So some of this has to do with just not knowing. Some of it is because of more obvious discrimination. And there may be other things um, playing a role here as well. I won't read all of these to you, but these are just some examples of some of the disparities that are um, that exist. So what can we do to reduce disparities? How can we improve healthcare for LGBTQ plus patients? This is of course not an all encompassing list that we're about to get into, but just some ideas and some examples of things that we can do. So there are definitely some national and local efforts that we can be aware of and that we may even want to get involved in. Um, so one would be data collection. If you need to solve a problem, the first step is often quantifying what that problem is. So there's lots of organizations that go about data collection in various forms, whether that's um, surveys or other types of research. Um, the CDC, the WHO, Health and Human Services, lots of groups that collect data. Um, and then we've got advocacy groups. So there's many medical societies and other groups such as the Human Rights Campaign, um, GLMA, the National LGBTQ Task Force, et cetera, that um, 
participate in advocacy efforts. And a lot of those you can easily get involved in, whether that's just do you know, donating $10 to the HRC or whether that's taking a more active advocacy role. There are also services that exist to provide better care and resources for LGBTQ plus patients. So some examples would be on more of a national level, the Trevor Project, which provides mental health resources for um, young LGBTQ plus patients. Um, and then you've got all the way down to local efforts. So for example, here in the Lansing area, we have something called the Salas Center, which is a resource center um, that's downtown in the Lansing area, but many other areas have similar um, centers to the Salas Center. Um, there's also educational efforts. So um, there's Fenway that has um, a lot of online CME. There are different repositories for resources like UCSF, lots of different organizations that provide education. But what can you do as an individual? So I think one of the most important sort of baseline things that you can and should do is to understand your biases and your privileges. So challenge what your assumptions are as well as your deficits in knowledge and experience and be willing to change those assumptions, change those perceptions that you have and do better. So you don't wanna deny differences. You don't wanna just say, well, I just treat my LGBTQ plus patients the same as I treat everyone. There's no difference because there are special considerations. Um, and so you don't want to just gloss over that and pretend that there's nothing that you need to consider. Um, and you also don't want to center your own experience, but really be open to learning new things and to challenging any of those biases that you may have. So part of that is educating yourself. So there may be official curricular learning activities, but at most medical schools, those activities may be inadequate or not very well integrated into the curriculum. I know I didn't really have any education on this whatsoever until maybe a little bit in residency, but I mostly educated myself. Um, if you look at studies, students report anywhere between like one and three hours of curricular time um, dedicated to this subject at most medical schools. We are trying to improve that significantly here at MSU. So we've got threads that go through our OPC course and it's incorporated into some of the other courses. I know the reproduction course has been um, adding some of these considerations as well as endocrine. So we're, we're making improvements, but it's still probably not where it needs to be. Um, and it's really variable from school to school. There are also some voluntary organized um, learning activities at a lot of places. So there may be student groups that sponsor learning activities, mentorships, and then conferences, um, and then self-guided learning. So I mentioned before Fenway, um, that's a great resource. So I've linked that here. So that's kind of the next step. So first you wanna make sure you're challenging your biases, then you're gaining more education. And then what can we do when we're actually taking care of patients? So a big piece of it that's really important is communication. So starting off, we wanna understand correct terminology and that's why we began with that at the beginning of this talk. Um, we want to understand all the correct terms and we also want to address people with the correct um, means of address when we talk to them. So we want to address them with the name that they use and the pronouns that they use rather than their legal name or their assigned sex at birth. Um, one way to go about doing that and to demonstrate to the patient that you want to address them appropriately is to show them how to address you. So you can share your pronouns. 
Um, some people will wear a pronoun pin. Some people will introduce themselves with their pronouns when they walk into the room. Um, if you are on a Zoom meeting, you can add your pronouns after your name to show up on the screen, that sort of thing. And then you can just ask the patient how they would like to be addressed. And that's a really important thing for all patients because you may have patients that go by a nickname or their middle name or prefer you use their last name versus their first name. Um, so it's, it's good practice to ask all patients how they would like to be addressed, but particularly for someone who is transgender and uses a name that they have chosen for themselves rather than their legal name or their assigned birth name, um, that will be a really important first step for um, gaining rapport and respect with that patient. When you communicate with patients, use neutral terms um, especially if you don't yet know someone's gender identity. So you can say things like, instead of, oh, how may I help you, sir? But you just say, how may I help you? Um, and then you're not making an assumption one way or the other. Um, or let's say your medical assistant is communicating to you, oh, the patient's ready to be seen rather than using female pronouns or male pronouns for that. Like she's ready to be seen, just saying the patient is ready. Um, if you're calling a patient back from the waiting room, um, if you're not sure what, um, you know, what honorific they use, you can use just their initials or just their last name instead of Mr. and Ms., that sort of thing. Um, when you're talking about other relations, you can talk about spouse or partner instead of husband or wife, parent instead of mother, father, sibling instead of brother, sister. So when you walk in the room, um, you know, you want to make sure you know who everyone is, but instead of saying like, oh, is this your wife? You can say, oh, is this your partner? Or who did you bring with you today is even better. That's even more open-ended. If you can't find a patient's record um, and you want to tactfully ask them, you know, maybe their name is different than their legal name or what their legal name was when they were born, you could ask them in a way such as, oh, I'm having trouble finding your records. Could your immunization record or could your chart be under a different name rather than saying like, oh, what's your real name or something that would be more offensive like that. Um, another thing is you know, be careful with what you think is a compliment. It may not always be a compliment. So if you tell someone like, oh, I couldn't even tell you're trans or oh, I, I couldn't even tell you're a lesbian, like that's not a compliment. That's actually pretty offensive to say. So avoid saying things like that. Um, that's, that's something that's not actually a kind thing to say. If you do address someone incorrectly, if you use the wrong pronouns or the wrong name for someone, just apologize and move on. You don't have to focus on it and just keep going over it and over it and apologizing repeatedly because then you're kind of asking that person to make you feel better about your discomfort and that's not their job. You really just want to apologize and move on and then try really hard not to do it again. Um, also communicate appropriately, as I said, with the family or support persons. Don't assume you know who that person is. Um, just make sure you ask. Another thing you can do in your practice is to create a welcoming environment. So you may post non-discrimination statements either on the wall or you can include that in your new patient paperwork or your yearly paperwork that you update. Um, that's good practice, not just for this patient population, but really for everyone. Um, and so that's something that really should be in your clinic somewhere. You can have gender neutral bathrooms or in some buildings, maybe you don't really have control over that and there are gendered separate bathrooms. You can just indicate which patient, um, you can indicate that patients can use whichever restroom um, they feel comfortable with. You can have inclusive signage and reading materials. So make sure if you've got advertisements, magazines, brochures about different you know, healthcare offerings, you can make sure that those appear to be inclusive. 
Um, but don't do any false advertising. Don't say like, oh, we're an LGBTQ plus friendly practice. If you aren't 100% sure that everyone is on board with that, you don't want to advertise that you're LGBTQ plus friendly and then somebody shows up and your front desk staff is like misgendering everyone. Then you've kind of really turned people off right at the, right at the gate. When you are collecting data, so you want to ask what you need to know and not just ask out of curiosity, but also don't skip important questions because it feels uncomfortable. And if you do have to ask questions, you want to ask the appropriate amount of questions in detail about that and not get hung up on things just because you kind of are curious and want to know more. So an example would be a patient comes in and they're complaining of a sore throat. Now that sore throat probably doesn't have anything to do with their gender identity. Maybe you need to know that information for their chart. It's probably in there somewhere if this is a return patient. But if you start asking that patient lots of questions about their gender, their assigned sex at birth, what surgeries they've had, oh, have you had bottom surgery, those sorts of things, that's really offensive. That has nothing to do with why they're there. Um, on the other hand, you don't want to skip out on the important stuff. So an example there might be someone who's coming in with abdominal pain. You want to know if something related to pregnancy is on that differential. So you really do need to know, does that person have a uterus? What kind of sexual intercourse do they have? Um, is there any possibility that they could be pregnant? So don't skip those questions when they are relevant. You also wanna ask at the right time. So what you don't wanna do is you're meeting a patient for the first time. You don't wanna just walk in the room and say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so, what's your name? What was your assigned sex at birth? Because what you're really asking you know, if you're asking a person who is cisgender that, they might be a little confused by the question or they might not think much of it. But if you're asking a transgender person that, that's really information that they don't take very lightly often because that's a source of discrimination a lot of times. And so what you're really asking kind of when you walk in the room is like, what genitals do you have? And that's something that they may not want to talk about right off the bat. So it's better if you first form a rapport with that patient and then ask them when it becomes appropriate. And you might couch that in some language to let them know why you're asking. So you might say, um, I don't want to make any assumptions, but could you share with me what, what is your gender identity? What was your assigned sex at birth? It's important for me to know this information because. So I would probably keep that information more for either in the course of your HPI, if it's relevant there, or in your social history, someplace other than right, right when you first walk in the room. Of course, a lot of times you'll know that before you even enter the room because your patient has probably included, um, has probably completed some intake forms. And so I'll show you an intake form on the next page, but it's important to have inclusive intake forms. And then you're gonna have a better shot at getting that accurate information without even having to verbally ask it. So you wanna have your intake forms be inclusive and then also your EHRs should be inclusive. Use neutral language and make sure you've got the right options on there to involve everyone without having binaries that will leave people excluded. So here's an example of the intake form that we use at our clinic. Um, and so what you'll see is that it asks, what is your gender identity? And it gives some options that people can check, but it also leaves a blank so that people can fill that in if what fits them best doesn't fit under one of those options. Um, same thing for assigned sex at birth. We also ask their pronouns, um, their sexual orientation, um, who they have sex with, that sort of thing. This is an example of our EHR. So we use Athena. 
Athena, I would say, is pretty good, not 100%, but it's it's on the better side when it comes to being able to represent people's um, names and pronouns and that sort of thing in an appropriate way. Really depends on which one you're using, and some are better than others. Um, so in this case, you can see the good thing that I like about Athena is that the name that the patient uses will be in large letters here, and then their legal name, which we may need to retain because we still need to submit their claims to insurance under their legal name and that sort of thing. But that's in smaller letters so that when we're calling the patient back, when we're talking to the patient, the name that they use is the one that's much more obvious and prominent. This chart also lets us specify pronouns in the banner bar, which is again, very helpful for addressing the patient appropriately. Um, what's probably not the best about Athena is that it does still have a lot of very strict binaries when it comes to the, you know, the letter M here or the letter F, and it will start triggering you with certain like quality measures depending on what's the legal gender. So some people will change their gender legally. Um, and then if this person, for example, was assigned male at birth, legally changes their gender to female, um, then the chart will start asking us, you know, if this person were 21 at least, the chart would then start asking me if this person is up to date on their pap smear when clearly that's not something they need. So there's some bugs, it's not perfect, but it's at least allowing us to see the correct methods of address prominently. When you're in the exam room, um, another thing you can do is using gender neutral language um, for things like body parts and mirroring the language that the patient uses. So here's some examples um, and you don't have to use any of these. And of course you wouldn't necessarily want to use the less gendered terms in a, in a time where you don't wanna sacrifice specificity, um, but these can be helpful um, to help patients feel more comfortable with um, when you're talking about body parts and that sort of thing. And again, you can ask the patient what terms they use. You can ask the patient, you know, what terms do you typically use for your genitalia? Um, and then you can mirror whatever they use. And then a lot of us educate students as well. So how can we improve our practices when we're educating students? Well, one thing we can do is to pay attention to what we really mean when we're talking about sex versus gender, men, women, or male, female, sometimes we mean body parts. So if we're talking about, you know, men have a lower risk of UTI compared to women, we're talking about that because of the body parts associated with that assigned sex. So what we could say instead would be something like people who have a penis are at a lower risk of UTI compared to people who have a vagina and, you know, talk about urethral length and, and the reasons behind that. But sometimes we mean gender as a social determinant of health. So women experience poverty at higher rates than men. And what we really mean is cisgender women experience poverty at higher rates than cisgender men. And what we could add there to be even more inclusive would be that we could go on to then explain that transgender people experience poverty at twice the rate of cisgender people. Sometimes there may be things that we don't actually know to what degree the, the difference or determinants we're talking about are social determinants versus biological determinants. So if we're talking about, for example, rates of strokes or heart attacks between men and women, maybe we don't know the degree to which that's related to social issues and discrimination and the, the extent to which that's related to what's going on with the body. And we can talk about that and we can be honest and upfront about all of those different things that play a role. Um, there may be times when you can use more general neutral language um, instead of gendered language in your written course pack materials, in your 
um, speech, when you're giving lectures, that sort of thing. So some examples might be to say chest feeding instead of breastfeeding, or say, you know, people or folks instead of men and women. Um, when people come into the class, you can say, you know, welcome to my classroom, folks, instead of, hi, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my talk today, um, that sort of thing. One, one area where I honestly struggle is the use of guys as a plural form of you. And so I catch myself some, sometimes saying, oh, hey, you guys, um, when what I really mean is folks or people, and that's a gendered word that a lot of us don't think of in a gendered uh, form in the Midwest, but that's not really universal. So I should try to get away from doing that. Um, and then, you know, when, when we're teaching, when can we include more information related to LGBTQ plus health topics in our courses? It's really something that should be across the entire curriculum. Um, it shouldn't be siloed into just specific talks or just one course. It's really something that affects all aspects of health and really should be talked about across the curriculum. And so we educate students, but there might be times when we educate others as well. So if we work in an office, then we may need to train our staff um, or we may need to train other colleagues. So that might be with official training materials. And some of that you might put together yourself or you might pull that from another source like Fenway that I mentioned in linked has some training materials for front office staff. So you might give official training materials or presentations, and then some of it's going to come in just informal conversations of telling your staff how to best address transgender patients and that sort of thing. You will probably witness some times where people are doing things or using language that isn't the best practice. A lot of times it's just an honest mistake and you can correct that pretty easily. So you might just say something like, oh, actually that patient's pronouns are he, his. Um, or, for example, maybe your medical assistant has accidentally asked a transgender person who doesn't have a uterus if they need a pap. And so you can just say, oh, Kate doesn't have a uterus, so she doesn't need a pap. Honest mistake, just be sure to check the history next time before, before asking about it. So one sort of way of looking at this that I, that I like um, is the... Um, the idea of calling out versus calling in. So calling out is when you really need to interrupt a behavior to prevent further harm. So if someone is doing something that's very offensive and you really need them to just stop doing that right then and there, then you might say something like, you're being really offensive. I need you to stop right there. I've mentioned Jace's pronouns to you several times. You continue to use them incorrectly and I really need you to stop doing that. So that stops it in the moment. Um, but where you really see change is with what we call calling in. So that's when we reflect and explore more deeply. And so then you might talk to someone, you know, you might pull them aside in a more private moment and say, you know, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about this. Like, why do you believe, you know, how can we work together to help you to use pronouns correctly? That sort of thing. So that you can really come up with a plan to look more deeply and help people change their behaviors. Of course, you can also, especially if this is something going on repeatedly, um, report any discrimination, obviously report any harassment, any non-LGBTQ plus friendly practices should be appropri appropriately reported to the corresponding venues. So as I said, today's talk was merely an introduction. And so I really would 
um, encourage you to learn more about these topics. And I've linked some resources here. Um, the top one here, the LGBTQIA Health Education, that's the Fenway Center. They've got lots and lots of online CME. So you can earn a little bit of free CME with just, you have to create a login, but it's free um, and learn more about all different sorts of topics. Everything from like HIV to care, to hormone treatment, to educating front office staff, all those sorts of things. Um, the AMA also has several different topics on their um, educational hub and then the AAFP has a toolkit as well. And then if you are interested in doing more transgender care, UCSF has a very comprehensive repository of um, guidelines and information there. So well, that's pretty much the end of my talk for today. Oh, if you have any questions, some. then please feel free to email me. My email address is here. And I would also love feedback if there's anything that we didn't cover today that would you that you would like to see in the curriculum or learn more about, I would be. I don't know why that had an automatic recording on it, but um, basically it said what I was going to say, which is that I welcome any feedback, any additional questions. That's my dog Poppy there, um, who is always by my side as I give these talks. So I figured I would give her a photograph in the uh, presentation here. And so yeah, feel free to email me if you have any questions or would like to be guided to further learning. Jessica, thank you so much for this. I know um, when when I was uh, working with like the OPC course and we started talking about intake forms and even the forms that we send, you know, the patients to fill out before they come into the office if they're new patients and, and anything like that of, of making the language inclusive. Um, and I, I still hear from offices that that's been challenging, partly because, like you pointed out, the EMR systems aren't as user friendly yet as we would like them to be. Um, what, what would be kind of like that first step if your office is just now making making these changes? What, what's the first thing that they really need to, to embrace? Sometimes you just need somebody to step forward and say, I'm going to make this change. I'm not going to wait for somebody else to make it happen. So sometimes you just have to be the one to volunteer to say, okay, I'm making this form and we're going to make it happen. And then get it in the hands of somebody who's going to make those official changes. Because a lot of times people will agree on things being a good idea, but it's not until somebody actually steps up and does the action that, that it will actually happen. Okay. And then can you touch on, because I know like there's been reports about um, misdiagnosis and patient safety issues, you know, if in transgender patients where um, they may not be getting their mammogram because we're, they're, they're not falling into our, our screening category. Um, how, how do we mitigate that? Yeah, I think that can be challenging because as I mentioned, sometimes the EHRs will, like maybe they'll remind us which patients need pap smears or which patient needs PSAs, but then it might kind of not give you the most accurate information if the patient's assigned sex at birth doesn't match their current gender, um, their current legal gender or whatever the EHR has in there. So sometimes you just have to be extra aware of it and not rely on the technology to tell you, um, but make sure you're sort of taking that step yourself to go through that second, um, you know, kind of checklist in your mind of what what a patient needs. So in the example of screening, like whatever body parts this patient has, they need to be screened according to guidelines. So you just have to remind yourself of that. 
Okay. Thank, thank you so much for that. And thank you for um, those resources. We will get them out to our uh, member programs and uh, continue the effort in educating because that's where it all starts. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you.